Good evening, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Pam Schaffler, Chair of the Board of Trustees here at New York Historical, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Company, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. It's always a privilege to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical Society. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees who are here tonight. Uh, Jim Grant, who I saw walk in in the back, Cy Sternberg, Russell Penoyer, and Ira Unschuld. These guys do a great deal for us in their role as trustees, and we're extremely grateful. It's also terrific to have so many Chairman's Council members in the room. Thank you for all your great work and your support. And finally, I'd like to give a big shout out to Dale Gregory, our exceptional Vice President for Public Programs, who you will hear from at the close of the event. The program this evening is going to last about an hour. It's going to include a question and answer session, and the Q&A will be conducted via written notes or written questions on note cards. If you did not receive a note card and a pencil when you came in tonight, our staff members are circulating throughout the auditorium, and they'll be collecting cards later in the program. Also to note, there will be a formal book signing following Mr. Lehrman's talk, and if you didn't bring your own, copies of his book will be available for you to purchase in our New York History store. We are thrilled to welcome noted scholar Louis E. Lehrman back to our stage. A member of our Board of Trustees since 2003, Mr. Lehrman was instrumental to our path-breaking 2008 exhibition on Alexander Hamilton, the man who made modern America. His vision of our institution as the destination for American history has guided us over the past 14 years with the most recent fruits of his initiative and extraordinary exhibition on our new fourth floor focused on Dolly Madison and the women of the early American Republic. Together with Richard Gilder, Mr. Lehrman established the Gilder Lehrman Collection of original historic manuscripts and documents on deposit for public access here at New York Historical Society. The Gilder Lehrman Institute for American History has developed a highly acclaimed national program for teaching American history in high schools and colleges throughout the United States. Mr. Lehrman also created the Gilda Lehrman Lincoln Prize and the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, which awards the Frederick Douglass Prize for the best work of the year on slavery, resistance, and abolition. For all of this tremendous work in American history, Mr. Lehrman was presented with the National Humanities Medal at the White House in 2005. Lewis Lehrman is the author of several books, including his latest, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Company, Studies in Character and Statecraft. In a highly complimentary review this past March, the Wall Street Journal noted, and I quote, the book is packed with fascinating detail and illuminates not only the past, but challenges of the present day. The subtitle is Studies in Character and Statecraft. Mr. Lehrman makes it clear that in geopolitics, the two go together. Before I welcome to him to the stage, I'm going to ask everyone to please check your cell phones and anything else that makes a noise or a buzz, turn them off. And now it's my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Lewis Lehrman. So, Madam Chairman, thank you so much for the introduction. Even after marriage and courtship for 53 years, one needs reinforcement. Louise is here. <laughs> Distinguished trustees, members, and guests, we are gathered in this hall tonight to contemplate the most colossal war of human history and to focus especially 
upon the Anglo-American alliance in World War II. At the onset of war, Anglophobia was a commonplace among civilian and military leaders in Washington. More than a century of Anglo-American competition had led to mutual distrust. Not to mention the revolutionary separation from the mother country and the humiliating War of 1812. Bad blood had also followed the disappointments of World War I, not least Britain's failure to repay its war debts to America. In Britain, condescension toward its former colonials still prevailed among the British elites. Depression at home and revolution abroad, appeasement and isolationism preoccupied both countries. Now, some American politicians believed that sophisticated British leaders, such as Winston Churchill and John Maynard Keynes, might be a slippery bunch who would fleece America in order to keep the British Empire intact. One British officer would write, and I quote him, some Americans are curiously liable to suspect that they are going to be outsmarted by the subtle British because we British sometimes do such stupid things that the Americans cannot take them at face value, but suspect them of being part of some dark design. <laughs> Churchill himself never doubted that the full support of the United States was necessary to defeat Hitler's bid for mastery of the European continent. After a desperate courtship of FDR by the Prime Minister in 1940 and in 1941, President Roosevelt would still not consent to marriage in the war against Nazi Germany. The cautious FDR would wait until Pearl Harbor in, November, in December 1941, whereupon a shotgun wedding would be declared nearly 18 months after the fall of France. During those fateful months, FDR had escalated US co cooperation with Churchill and none too soon. By the time of Pearl Harbor, German troops had arrived at the gates of Moscow. Now, let us pause for a moment to consider the provenance of these two titans of the Anglo-American alliance. Educated by tutors at home until he went to Groton, FDR, as a very young man, followed the path of the rich and the well-born. Churchill, at seven years of age, was sent off to a very harsh boarding school. Then, after his years at Harrow School, he would struggle to pass the examination to enter the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Roosevelt would go to Harvard. There, he had some success, but he was mortified to be rejected by the socially prestigious Porcelian Club to which his father had belonged. Now, young Winston, upon graduation from Sandhurst, would see the world as a junior army officer in the cavalry, and at the same time as a highly paid war correspondent, a most irregular role for a British army officer. Eight years older than FDR, Churchill would become world famous by the time Roosevelt entered Harvard. As a British army officer, Churchill would prove intrepid in battle in Cuba, India, the Sudan, and South Africa. In the Boer War, he would attain the world renown he craved as a vehicle by which to enter parliament. At that time, the future prime minister thought himself unique. I think it's fair to say that he always thought himself unique. <laughs> but at that time, he would confide to a lady friend, I quote him, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. 
Now, FDR would marry his cousin, Eleanor, in 1905, in a wedding presided over by her uncle, Theodore Roosevelt, then President of the United States. Churchill would propose to Clementine Hosier in the summer of 1908 at Blenheim, the Marlborough Palace where he was born, grandson of the Duke. Before and during World War I, Churchill would serve in the cabinet as First Lord of the Admiralty. Roosevelt himself would never serve in the armed forces, but he would follow the example of his famous cousin, Teddy, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy in World War I under Woodrow Wilson. In May 1940, when Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, Great Britain would undergo one of the gravest crises of her long national history, namely a mortal threat to the very survival of the nation itself. Indeed, at the end of 1940, Britain was insolvent. Isolated by the fall of France, the UK fought the massive German armed forces alone. To prevail, the prime minister knew he needed an American alliance. As he said, I quote him, I will drag America in. But in fact, it would be Japan and Germany on December 7th and December 11th, 1941, who would drag America into World War II. Some distrust between America and Britain never dissipated during World War II, all gossip to the contrary notwithstanding. The president and his secretary of state, Cordell Hull, resented Churchill's determination to maintain the British Empire and its imperial trading preferences. But the prime minister would defiantly respond, I quote him, I have not become the king's prime minister to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. Working under the prime minister and the president were many levels of military and civilian leaders, some of whom did embrace the trust and the team spirit necessary for victory. But on neither side of the Atlantic was the team spirit pervasive. For example, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, and their deputies, among others, shed their Anglophobia reluctantly. The Chief of Naval Operations, the tough and crusty Admiral Ernest King, would never stop pulling the lion's tail. But U.S. Army Chief of Staff George Marshall and Supreme Commander in Europe Dwight Eisenhower would supervise many officers who made the alliance effective. Among important civilian officials of the alliance who aimed at teamwork were Harry Hopkins, Averill Harriman, Lord Beaverbrook, and Anthony Eden. Indeed, the gifted Hopkins would become FDR's de facto national security counselor, an unlikely achievement for a former social worker from small town Iowa. Above all, Hopkins would gain the trust of the prime minister, even that of the standoffish Clementine. Now, on his second trip to London in July 1941, Harry Hopkins would take a Navy seaplane across the Arctic to Moscow, where he met with Joseph Stalin for three days. He reported that Stalin welcomed him with a few blunt Russian words. I quote Stalin. I quote Hopkins on Stalin, forgive me. It was like talking to a perfectly coordinated machine. Joseph Stalin knew exactly what he wanted, knew what Russia needed, and he assumed that you knew too. Stalin made the case to Hopkins that Russia would survive the murderous German assault, an argument which would lead to the Allied invasion to give limitless Lend-Lease aid 
to Russia. Now, historians tend to emphasize that Churchill, Roosevelt, and company won the war in the West and in the Pacific. All true, but less acknowledged is the fact that it was the Soviet army that destroyed the bulk of the German armed forces in the East. 80%, four out of every five German soldiers killed in battle died fighting the Russians on the Eastern Front. Now let us uh, for a moment consider the character and the personality of the commanders-in-chief of the Anglo-American alliance. Churchill and Roosevelt themselves were patricians of great talent and of soaring ambition, inspired not least by their elite families and their famous forebears. Roosevelt, a Democrat, would prove the much better grassroots politician having the political skill to build a loyal organization in the Republican Hudson Valley. FDR would enter New York politics when the progressive Repu Republican Theodore Roosevelt was probably the most famous American in the world. Politics was different for Roosevelt and for Churchill. Churchill's heart beat to the rhythm of debate in Parliament not to the noise of grassroots politics. Now, after his heroic struggle to overcome polio and paralysis, FDR would become the people's politician, much more attuned than Churchill to public opinion. But even in early 1941, after three presidential victories, FDR did not preside over a decisive congressional majority, not least because of the isolationism in both the Democrat and Republican parties. Now, Churchill, on the other hand, governed a large majority coalition throughout the war. But FDR would have to fight two campaigns for the presidency during the war, 1940 and 1944. The prime minister would face no parliamentary general election until July 1945, at the end of the war in Europe, whereupon he was summarily dismissed from office by the British voters. One of the great ironies of the war. Churchill's character and manner were more straightforward than that of Roosevelt. FDR, in fact, was practiced at deception, as he himself readily acknowledged. He told Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, and I quote him, you know I am a juggler and I never let my left hand know what my right hand does. Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, would say to Roosevelt, and I quote Mr. Ickes, you won't even talk frankly with people who are loyal to you, the loyalty of whom you are fully convinced. Roosevelt's devoted speechwriter and a great talent, Robert Sherwood wrote, and I quote him, if either the president or the prime minister could be called a student of Machiavelli, it was surely Franklin Roosevelt. However, the emotional prime minister was himself a complex mixture of actor and warrior he could alternate quickly between charmer and curmudgeon. But Churchill's true feelings tended to show, show through. He rarely bothered to hide them. He did not hold back tears, even sobbing in public. The guarded FDR was much more circumspect. More tightly wound, more intense than Roosevelt, Churchill would not rest from prosecuting the war, nor would would he or could he relax as FDR did with his stamp collection and his naval encyclopedias? The prime minister was all in for war, all the time. General Hastings Ismay, Churchill's patient military aide, also his liaison to the British chiefs of staff, 
would joke about the prime minister. I quote him, Churchill is the great military genius of history. He can use one division on three fronts at the same time. Still on strategy, Churchill almost always consulted his war cabinet. But during the war, FDR paid little attention to his cabinet, his attitude toward the State Department bordering on contempt. For example, Secretary of State Cordell Hull was not in Washington when the president would soon depart for his first summit conference with the prime minister at Placentia Bay in 1941. So Roosevelt invited Sumner Wells, the number two man at state. Now, like FDR, Wells was a Groton man, a Harvard-educated member of the so-called Eastern establishment. FDR himself was far more comfortable with Wells than with Hull, a former Tennessee senator. Eleanor Roosevelt would observe, and I quote her, that Franklin is not at ease with people not of his own class. At this Placentia Bay summit near Newfoundland, Roosevelt and Churchill decided to send a small delegation to Moscow to decide what military resources should be shipped to Russia. To go to Russia, FDR would choose the man who had been managing the American side of Lend-Lease in Britain, Averill Harriman. Now, if I may, Harriman was the not-so-rare American in London who embraced the charms of Pamela Digby Churchill, the Prime Minister's daughter-in-law. Edward R. Murrow was another. But no more locker room talk tonight. <laughs> Going with Harriman to Russia was a, a British delegate, the controversial Lord Beaverbrook, a Canadian-born press lord who had served with Churchill in a World War I cabinet. Indeed, the self-commented prime minister would even choose Beaverbrook for his first cabinet in 1940 over the doubts and hesitations of King George VI. The stubborn Beaverbrook could and did stand up to the prime minister, but he would later complain that eating, drinking, and arguing with the prime minister I quote him, nearly killed me, almost made me a drunkard. <laughs> Not every man could, like Churchill, drink an estimated 20,000 bottles of champagne in a single lifetime. Now, FDR was, like Churchill, a man of intuition and impulse, but his inner life was opaque even to those who knew him best. Robert Sherwood, the same loyal speechwriter, wrote, I quote him, I tried continually to study FDR, to try to look beyond his charming and amusing and warmly affectionate surface into his heavily forested interior. Anna Roosevelt, FDR's own daughter, would say no one truly knew FDR, even members of his, own, of his own family. But in decision-making, FDR would choose wisely his leaders of the armed forces, men such as General Marshall and General Eisenhower, so too his senior admirals, King and Nimitz, Stark and Spruance. But as a historian Warren Kimball wrote, FDR would often dismiss detail with a cavalier wave of the hand. According to Arthur Schlesinger Jr., FDR was the supreme improviser. Schlesinger also wrote that FDR's, and I quote uh, Mr. Schlesinger, FDR's favorite technique was to keep grants of authority incomplete, jurisdictions uncertain, charters overlapping. The result of this competitive theory of administration was often confusion 
and exasperation on the operating level. To his diary, Secretary of War Stimson confided that FDR was, and I quote him too, the poorest administrator I have ever worked under with respect to the orderly procedure and routine of his performance. Now, in addition to Joseph P. Kennedy, Lord Beaverbrook, Harry Hopkins, and Averill Harriman, I do focus in my book not only on other major civilian and military leaders, but also on dozens of key figures not so well known. Among a few of these leaders, I, I should like to name them, were the super spies, William Donovan and William Stevenson. Ambassador Wynant, Lord Lothian, Lord Halifax, Anthony Eden, General, General uh, Burns, and also John Maynard Keynes and the Soviet spy at Treasury, Harry Dexter White, Henry Morgenthau's chief deputy at the US Treasury Department. It was, in fact, Harry Dexter White who was totally in charge of the momentous Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, which established the post-war international monetary and financial system. But I, shall tr but I shall tell you only a little more about these fascinating characters. Maybe you will then want to buy the book. <laughs> Alone among the big three, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, the prime minister would make the exhausting travel at great personal risk to keep the alliance together, always trying to reduce misunderstandings by speaking directly with his American and Russian allies. The prime minister's travel astonished his colleagues. The tireless Churchill would meet Roosevelt 11 times during the war, always in North America, except at Casablanca, Cairo, Tehran, and Yalta. Of the Prime Minister's courageous and constant travel by air and ship into the war zones, General Douglas MacArthur would write, and I quote him, foreign and hostile lands may be the duty of young pilots, but for a statesman burdened by the world's cares, it is an act of inspiring gallantry and valor. Of the Victoria Cross, the British Medal of Honor, MacArthur would say, no one of those who wears it deserves to wear it more than Churchill himself. Now, it is true that by early 1941, before Pearl Harbor, key American cabinet members did favor US entry into the war against Hitler, including Navy Secretary Frank Knox and Secretary of War Henry Stimson. They were ahead of the president and ahead of public opinion, of which FDR was the consummate master. But for FDR, there were distractions which made him very cautious. Despite his landslide victory in November 1940, the president would always remember his campaign pledge to American mothers not to send their sons to war again. Nevertheless, Roosevelt shrewdly raised the temperature of American belligerence in 1940 and 1941. With FDR's approval, US military authorities began actively planning for war, even in late 1940, one year before Pearl Harbor. It was then that Admiral Stark produced the famous dog memo on General war strategy on a global basis, which led to the American-British-Canadian War Planning Conference of early 1941 in Washington. There, the conference would confirm a Germany-first strategy in the event of war. This almost a year before the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. So with the benefit of hindsight, a great advantage for historians. We are now enabled to see that the first week of December 1941 was in fact an early turning point of World War II. 
It was at the beginning of December 1941 that the German invasion, invasion forces were turned back at the gates of Moscow by a Russian counterattack led by Marshal Zhukov in temperatures that reached 20 to 30 degrees below zero. Moreover, on December 7th, as we well know, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, uniting the former isolationist America behind a congressional declaration of war. Prime Minister Churchill, as he wrote in his memoirs, would go to bed and sleep the sleep of the saved. However, it must be said that all of the members of the Grand Alliance, Britain and Russia and the United States, had been to some extent unready for World War II, despite transparent warnings and obvious near threats. The British and the French at war since September 1939 had been caught unready for the overwhelming German blitzkrieg of May 1940. Despite many authentic warnings, Stalin had been caught unprepared for the German invasion of June 1941, not least because Russia had been Germany's former ally in a cynical fascist-communist partnership created by the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 1939. Even the US government was not fully prepared for war with Japan, a war that FDR did expect. And things would change in the balance wheel of the alliance as the years went by. It was in late 1943 that the Churchill-Roosevelt honeymoon would deteriorate, along with the health of both men. There were sincere policy differences, too, confirming the rule of statecraft, that nations have no permanent friends, only vital interests. The clash of strong personalities could also divide the Anglo-American leaders long before victory was assured. For example, Army Chief of Staff General Marshall never really forgave Churchill for convincing Roosevelt during the summer of 1942 to delay Marshall's thoughtful but premature strategic plan for an allied cross-channel invasion of Europe. This he proposed for the autumn of 1942, even though America had entered the war only in December of 1941. Instead, the prime minister persuaded FDR to invade North Africa, namely the amphibious operation, Operation Torch of which Eisenhower would become the supreme commander, this assignment being the general's launching pad as the supreme commander, ultimately, of Overlord on D-Day. This remarkable cross-channel invasion of Normandy finally got underway on June 6, 1944, two years after Marshall had made plans for it. Along the road to Allied victory, there were plenty of grievous misjudgments. For example, in the 1930s, as an early advocate of British Air Force expansion, Churchill would declare, and I quote him, an aeroplane, A-E-R-O, an aeroplane cannot sink a battleship because the armor is too thick. And in early 1938, Churchill would say, and I quote him again, the air menace against properly armed and protected ships of war will not be of decisive character. Tell that to the Japanese Navy in 1942. Devastating Japanese aircraft carrier attacks on the British Navy and on its empire in the Pacific would shock Churchill to the quick. In the spring of 1941, Stalin refused to believe numerous reliable sources that a German invasion of Russia was imminent, despite the obvious fact that Hitler had mobilized three million German soldiers near the border for the invasion. Stalin's foolhardy myopia 
would cause disaster and death to strike millions of the Russian people gratuitously. Now here is the best one of all. U.S. Admiral William Leahy, the indispensable chief of staff to FDR, as well as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, would say, the atomic bomb will never go off. And I speak as an expert on explosives. <laughs> the ironies of the war. In the end, the character and the statecraft of the Supreme Allied Commander of the D-Day invasion, General Eisenhower, cannot be underestimated. He it was who proved that an American general could manage not only proud American officers, but also British commanders. His grin, his diplomacy, his modesty, his low-key ability to inspire, his sheer likability overcame what might otherwise have been insurmountable allied challenges. First Sea Lord, British Admiral Andrew Cunningham wrote, and I quote him, from the very beginning, Eisenhower set Anglo-American unity and friendship as a primary purpose. The staffs were closely integrated, and it was not long before the British and the Americans ceased to look at each other like warring tomcats and came to discover that nationals of both countries had brains, ideas, and drive. Thus, it is fitting that we now listen to General Eisenhower's very own major tribute to the Anglo-American victory given at the Guildhall in London on June 12, 1945. I quote the general. No one could alone have brought about this result. Had I possessed the military skill of a Marlboro, the wisdom of Solomon, the understanding of Lincoln, I still would have been helpless without the loyalty, the vision, the generosity of thousands upon thousands of British and Americans. Some of them were my companions in the high command. Many were enlisted men and junior officers carrying the fierce brunt of the battle in the field. And many others were back in the United States and here in Great Britain, in London. Moreover, back of us were always our great national war leaders and their civil and military staffs that supported and encouraged us through every trial, every test. The whole was one great team. Thank you very much. Thank you. So the first question is, why did the British populace turn against Churchill after the war? Clement Attlee won the election by an 8% popular majority margin. So it was a decisive defeat of Churchill. The story of... The, uh, the British voter in 1945 begins really in, 19, in the 1930s and in the early 1940s. The British people had been impoverished by World War I and the Depression uh, of the 1930s. And as a result, socialism had become a powerful force in, in Britain. Indeed, communism was a very strong force in Britain. There was a great deal of sympathy for the Soviets, and Churchill and Roosevelt themselves were very much aware of this in Britain at the time. Indeed, the Soviet Union was thought to be, in some places, um, 
not least the universities, to be the wave of the future. So that um, in Britain, under Lord Beveridge, a plan was concocted primarily by the Labour Party for what they called a new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem was to provide every British family a proper home, proper food, proper health, proper security, and, of course, a worthy job. This program was something that Churchill himself would not endorse. In fact, he hated communism from its very inception. He so opposed the Bolshevik Revolution that after World War I, he would supervise British troops in Russia attempting to turn back the Bolsheviks. So Churchill would not, though he was not a conservative uh, in the classical sense of it, uh, Churchill would not accept the so-called social, socializing of England. Indeed, during the campaign, he even referred to the possibility that the socialist United Kingdom under Clement Attlee would have an effect, a Gestapo-like effect, and he used that word. That word alone um, probably lost him a, a large percentage of the margin of victory. So that we have a British electorate divided on the one hand between the, the hope for a future called the New Jerusalem, which was a form of socialism, and Churchill himself who would resist it. Even the soldiers voted against Churchill. So Britain was ready for a completely new social regime. regime. And I might add, this persisted until Margaret Thatcher. So domestically, why was the socialistic construction of Roosevelt's New Deal ever allowed to happen with his Republican constituents, presumably in the Hudson Valley? And were there reverberations into the 1950s? Well, I have to say, I, I must answer that in another book. <laughs> but it's a very, very good question. Uh, maybe a, a quick way to answer it is to say that my, I was born and raised in central Pennsylvania, rock rib Republican territory. My, my daddy and my grandpa were Lincoln Republicans to the core. They both voted for Roosevelt. Would you describe the relationship between Churchill and Joseph Kennedy? You must buy my book. FDR and Kennedy. This is a great question. Uh, um, Joseph Kennedy, uh, we, we probably know, uh, was very ambitious politically. He even contemplated running for the presidency of the United States, but decided to wait for Jack and Joe. Um, he, uh, he was the leading Democrat politician in Massachusetts. He aspired uh, to high a point of office, especially the Secretary of the Treasury. Roosevelt was reluctant to appoint him. And eventually, in 1938, after being the head of the SEC, um, he accepted appointment and wanted it as ambassador to the Court of St. James in England. There, Joseph Kennedy um, ruined the reputation that he had been building all of his life in business. He continually, in public, used the word, this is after 1940, 1939-1940, that Britain was finished. It was not that he was sympathetic to Hitler, he just believed that Hitler was going to prevail and dominate the continent. And that was the policy that he wanted to pursue. He wanted somehow an accommodation with 
uh, Hitler on the continent. Of course, Churchill would have none of this. And therefore, his relationship with Churchill was never hostile in the active political sense because Churchill himself was a diplomat, even though Joe, Joe Kennedy was not. But however, it was a relationship which existed at Swords Point. Similarly with, F, similarly with FDR. FDR knew how ambitious Joseph Kennedy was. Um, he tended to condescend uh, toward uh, Joseph Kennedy. Kennedy never really liked Roosevelt, and Roosevelt never really liked Kennedy. However, politicians and politics make strange bedfellows. And Kennedy was very important in the election of Roosevelt. He had lots of money to invest and lots of constituents which would support him. So that in, in some, one has to say that his relationship with Churchill was very strained to the point of breaking at times, and his relationship with FDR was strained to the point, breaking point as well. To read the story in my book of how Roosevelt got read got rid of Kennedy shows how deft a politician Roosevelt was. Um, Kennedy was out of the court of St. James uh, by the beginning of 1941, and Roosevelt was happy to be rid of him. So here's a, another a, a book-length qu question. What can our current leaders learn from <laughs> the examples of FDR and Churchill? Well, in the case of FDR, certain, certainly personal courage. I mean, his triumph over polio was just astonishing. Um, his war leadership in, 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 in the major decisions is an example that you don't have to be full-time on the job to make important strategic, strategic decisions which work out. In the case of Churchill, there is no more heroic example of a war of national survival being presided over by a prime minister who would never give in. His, one of his great speeches was, never give in. So if guts and glory go together, Churchill gets most of the glory because he had most of the guts. Um, this question is a good one, but it talks about Trump Prime Minister May, and Putin. And there's enough controversy in World War II <laughs> that I hope you'll forgive me for, uh, for, for passing it. Um, this is a complicated question. I think one should hear it. Do you think Churchill and Roosevelt should be held accountable for their knowledge of concentration camps and rampant Jewish oppression and their failure to do anything about it? So permit me to contest the implication of the question. Um, they did not do nothing about it. Um, most of you may remember from your history books in, the, in high school or college, the Fordy McCumber Act of 1924, which limited immigration very strictly in all of America, and especially in the countries of Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, in fact, um, decided to 
combine the quotas, which were spelled out in the 40 McCumber Act, to combine the quotas for Austria and Germany and permit only Jewish refugees to take those places. Now, that was a small fraction of the Jews in Germany, not to mention Eastern Europe, but he did, I think, what the law permitted him to do. There, of course, is the question about the, the ship St. Louis, which was turned back with Jewish refugees. That is a, a very sad tale, and it's hard to explain that, other than to say that there was in the State Department an Assistant Secretary of State, um, I hope I offend nobody, but it, it's transparently the case, by the name of Breckenridge Long. It, it is a matter of fact that he was not sympathetic to the Jewish refugee problem, even though there was only a limited amount that Franklin Roosevelt was able to do. Now, in the case of Churchill, I would have to call Churchill a philo-Semite. And he was the opposite of an anti-Semite. He was a philo-Semite. He always endorsed the Balfour Declaration, which the British foreign minister, Arthur Balfour, had uh, espoused for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Churchill uh, was always in the right place at the right time for, uh, for the Jewish homeland. In World War II, uh, it is claimed that there was an appeal, and there was an appeal, to bomb the rail lines into Auschwitz. And I think that may be an implication of this question. There was a, a, a sincere and serious debate over whether or not the rail lines into Auschwitz could be accurately bombed. First of all, the bombs uh, being dropped by uh, airplanes, bombers, over Germany were quite inaccurate. Just to give you an example, 47% of the pilots who flew British and American Air Force missions over Germany did not return. Very often killed by bombs going off in their own uh, aircraft. That is the way Joe Kennedy, young Joe Kennedy, the son of the ambassador died. So that they refer to it more as aerial bombing. As the war went on, the bombing got more and more accurate, but the aerial bombing was really just opening up the, the, the bottom of the airplane and dropping the bombs out on cities, and incinerating whole cities like Dresden. So that the argument that we could have successfully, or I should say the Anglo-American Alliance, could have successfully bombed the rail lines into Auschwitz is a, a, deba a, a debatable question at best. So I conclude the, uh, for this uh, good question that Churchill and Roosevelt themselves should not be held responsible. It was manifestly the work of Hitler, the Nazi party, and their allies in Eastern Europe. I deal with this one in my book, too. You'll forgive me. Why did Marshall and Eisenhower think a cross-channel invasion in 1942 or 1943 was military possible, militarily possible? So um, it was primarily General Marshall whose plan it was. Eisenhower was his director of plans. He did what Marshall told him to do. It is true that Eisenhower had a very positive attitude toward the plan. I mean, this was his very own plan that he delivered uh, to General Marshall. There was a confidence in American, the American military. You, for, you won't forget that in World War I, the arrival of a million American troops in the spring and fall of 1917 in, in Europe turned the balance of the war. And the Americans, although suffering major casualties, acquitted themselves brilliantly. And of course, there was armistice in the World War I uh, on November uh, 1918, not, not a little bit a result of the American intervention. So the American army 
was very confident that they, that they could bring together the same kind of intervention force and cross the channel. It was Churchill who believed that, yes, it was possible, but it was premature. Churchill's strategy was to collect all the American soldiers in Great Britain, primarily in England, in Northern England, to train them for two years, and then to attempt the cross-channel invasion. Not to mention that in 1942, we didn't even have a landing craft. And Churchill and General Sir Allen Brooke pointed that out. We didn't have the landing craft to land the troops on the Normandy beaches or wherever um, in France they decided to land them. So that it was one of those aggressive inspirations of General Marshall um, to get American troops into action in France. You'll remember that General Marshall was the adjutant for General Pershing with the American Expeditionary Force in 1917. So he had memories, and he wanted to acquit the American army as quickly as possible. It was Churchill and Sir Allen Brooke, and then FDR in support of Churchill and General Allen Brooke, who decided to delay the, the cross-channel invasion. Indeed, the preparations for uh, June 6, 1944 went on daily, and of course it was a success, but there was no guarantee of success. Anyone who's read the story of the weather and the crossing on, on June 6th, which was very doubtful, uh, knows how likely failure could have resulted. Do I believe that Stalin outnegotiated FDR at Yalta? So I have a full chapter in my book on it. <laughs> on Yalta. Um, I, I think it is fair to say that Stalin did get the best deal at Yalta. Did he outnegotiate Roosevelt? At that time, Roosevelt had two objectives. One was the foundation of the United Nations itself to fulfill the promise of Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, which had failed abjectly. The second was to get Russia into the war against Japan. Remember, war in Europe was, was over May 8th, May 9th, May 10th. War in Japan was not over until we dropped the atomic bomb. And I know that date because it's my birthday, August 15th, August 15th, 1945. So that... Mm, Roosevelt did not know that they were going to drop the atomic bomb. He might have, had he lived, he might have given the order, but he did not know then. Getting Russia into the war was important to him in order to save as many American lives for the necessary Japanese invasion as possible. So with the benefit of hindsight, like historians, we can all say that Stalin got the best deal at Yalta, but it doesn't take into account all the considerations which uh, President Roosevelt had in mind at, at Yalta at that time. I think Dale Gregory, there are a couple of other wonderful questions here, um, which you'll forgive me for not answering. I thank you very much. Lewis Lehrman, thank you for a, a, just an extremely interesting evening. And, you know, of course, we could go another half hour, but Mr. Lehrman is going to do a wonderful book signing, so you can join him on the Central Park West Side and talk with him a little bit. You'll have a little time to chat while you're signing. Yes? No. Um, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, okay. And for those of you who are, who are new with us, our museum store is on the 77th Street side of the building. And if you are new, 
please consider becoming a member. Just a show of hands, all the members we have with us, and join the family. So thank you very much, and thank, thank you all. Thank you, Dale. Thank you very much.